0: We're going to have our reading now, so if you want to uh, grab your Bibles and turn to uh, Hosea, the book of Hosea and chapter four, which is uh, page 903, if you've got a church Bible, uh, and on the screen as well. So Hosea chapter four starting at verse one and going up to uh, chapter five and verse seven hear the word of the lord you israelites because the lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the lands there is no faithfulness no love no acknowledgement of god in the land there is only cursing lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse another, for you people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchange their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol, and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offering on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consult with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty, do not go to Gilgal, do not go up to Beth-Avon, and do not swear, surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Hear this, you priests, pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house, this judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on table. The rebels are knee deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. When they celebrate their new moon feasts, he will devour their fields.
1: Definitely going to help you tonight to have that passage from the Bible open. Pretty unfamiliar place I'm guessing for nearly all of us including me so uh, do keep that open we won't get through every nook and cranny of it tonight there's just simply too many verses too many words Um, but hopefully we'll get a feel for what the Lord is saying here and why it matters so much. Uh, The title for tonight is Love Exchanged and it begins really um, with love going wrong. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called Good and Angry I've mentioned it before Um, I recommend it it's very very good and uh, as I was reading this week, two stories really um, stood out to me. One about a married couple and one about a mother losing the plot with her child in the supermarket. Uh, I could relate to the second one more than the first, and you'll see why in a minute. Uh, David Pallison, uh says this uh, as he describes the story. He said, I once counseled a couple who had a gunfight in their suburban house. Willie was upstairs with the pistol, Brenda downstairs with the rifle. That had words, the usual daily bickering, and it got a more heated than usual. Finally, ugly words escalated into domestic World War III. Half a dozen rounds of live fire zinged up and down the stairway. Their marital dispute blasted holes in the walls, scared the daylights out of the neighbors and brought police sirens to their door. Talking to me was part of the court mandated alternative to felony charges. For some reason, I've never forgotten this story. Now, a couple of things strike me about that story, but one of them is the thing at the end, that actually instead of going to jail, they had to talk to a biblical counsellor. It makes me wonder what would happen if I said to Katie, "Oh, could you have a word with, I won't use any names, uh, they've, they've, just, they've just recently had a gunfight in their house, and part of what the judges said is they need to talk to you. I'm not sure she'd take it in her stride, um, but it would be quite unusual. that's love gone wrong in a marriage. The second story that hit me this week was about a mother and a child in a supermarket. This one was more familiar to me. Her boy was screaming and whining because he wanted sweets. We've all been there at some point if you had children, I guess. But this really got out of hand. He kept going and going and going at his mom. And his mom gradually lost the plot with the boy. Started yelling at him and calling him names. And then she slapped him straight around the face. And then she threatened to leave him in the store And not come back. What struck me in this story was David Pallison's comment. He said they were a couple of really angry people. It made me angry. I felt angry at the mum. She was abusing her son. It is plain wrong what she was doing. I felt angry at the boy. He was tormenting his mum. And it's plain wrong to do that. I was. Angry, I hated what they were doing in such a way that I wanted to help. I wished I could protect them, give them mercy, and help them change. It was one of those two rare moments when anger seemed motivated by love. Anger motivated by love. Why am I telling you these stories? Well, because Hosea is all about love gone wrong. It's about love between God and his people. And the two images that are most often used are God as husband and God as father. But unlike the two scenarios which I described where there was fault on both sides, fault between husband and wife taking gunshots at each other, there's fault on both sides there. I'm not going to argue about who is more culpable, the rifle or a pistol. There's clearly something wrong. But also, there's fault in the supermarket, isn't there? Child shouldn't torment their mum, and a mother shouldn't respond abusively to the child. But in the breakdown in the relationship between God and his people, the fault is actually all on our side, the side of God's people. We walk away from God as our perfect husband, our perfect father. And we run after other gods. In a sense, we exchange the love of God for something that we think is better than him, an upgrade. It seems maybe his love is an unwanted gift. We've had it for a while. We've grown bored of it. and We move on to other things. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that the beginning of Hosea, the first three chapters are actually a story. They are the prophet's own story of a very unhappy marriage. God told Hosea, the prophet, to marry a a lady called Goma, who he said would be unfaithful to him, and she was. And so the relationship then broke down. She had children outside of the marriage relationship. And then after a time, God says to Hosea the prophet, go after her, redeem her, bring her back, restore the married relationship. And that's the story which leads into the chapters we're about to look at. And all the way through it is a picture of God's relationship with his people Israel. So if you turn back a page to chapter 1 verse 2, it says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have, with, uh, have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. It was a picture. Turn again to page, uh, turn back the page into chapter three, verse one, when God says to Hosea to redeem his wife. What does he say? The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. This story seems a picture of what was going on in Israel at the time. And what we're going to see in the next 10 chapters, 11 chapters, chapters 4 to 14, is the outworking of that in a number of sermons and writings by the prophet Hosea. So the story is there. And these over 25 years of ministry are some of the messages that Hosea brought to the people of Israel. And tonight's section might answer two questions. Why does God care about unfaithfulness among his people, their leaders, and in their worship? and then right at the end, what will God do about unfaithfulness in his people? What we need to know is that this isn't just something for the 8th century BC. These messages were actually compiled later. These 25 years of ministry almost put us to a greatest hits album for us to keep from now on, assembled for the people in the South, in Judah. And right at the end of Hosea, here, again, turn the pages, turn right to the end of the books. So you'll need to keep turning. Find chapter 14, page 911. The final verse is actually aimed widely, includes people like you and me right the way through history. Whoever compiled this book just adds this comment at the end. Whoever is wise, let them realize these things. Whoever is discerning, let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. So as we work through these messages from Hosea, what we need to remember is we too need that wisdom that just like the people in the 8th century BC, we can actually think that the good life lies somewhere else, that the love of God isn't everything that we need, that we need to add to that, that God alone isn't sufficient for us and our hearts can become unfaithful to him. And we can follow leaders who water down the gospel who actually make it seem as if we can have sin and Jesus, prosperity and Jesus, a whole nother gospel and Jesus. And we can actually feel like we're living for Jesus when really it's only on a Sunday for a few hours we even think about him. And if the rest of our week was followed around and analyzed, it would be so clear that really we're living for something completely different. And what we need to know is out of his perfect love, Father God, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom who we're thinking about this morning, is out looking for us, even this evening, to deepen our love for him and for those of us who are straying to bring us back to himself with all of our hearts. So let's look at the first of these questions here. Why does God care about unfaithfulness among his people Let me read those first three verses. I'm going to reread the whole passage tonight because it's long, but we'll read the first three verses again. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. Let's pause there. We're now in the courtroom. God is, as it were, summoning his people into court, and he's going to present evidence against them, proof they've forsaken their love for him. And the charge is really spelled out in verse 10 onwards. It, you should, probably couldn't miss it because it keeps coming up again and again and again. Look with me, we'll quickly scan through these verses. They will even, but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not flourish because they've deserted the Lord, give themselves to prostitution, old and new wine and t- take away their understanding. My people consult a with Nidon, and Viner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are Unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution, your daughters in law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, when your daughters in law commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots, with prostitutes, and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. We could keep going. Time and again, those words, adultery and prostitution are used to describe the charge that God brings among his people. Their hearts have turned away from him and are going after other gods. They want anything but him. And that's where he begins tonight. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you, against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness. The thing that God longs for you and me at the most basic level is that we would be faithful to him. Then he carries on. There is no faithfulness, no love. The word there for love is covenant love. Love that exists, say, within a marriage where you promise to love someone. It's that love that's on display here, but it's missing. They've made a promise to God, but they don't want to follow through on it. And it actually says here, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There are obligations that the people aren't willing to make, they're not prepared to follow what they said they would do before God. They won't acknowledge him. What do they do instead? Well, there's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They ring any bells? I'm guessing for some of you who know your Bibles, well, you recognize they're the breaking of five commandments, five of the ten cursing there's breaking of not taking the name of the lord in vain lying and murder stealing and adultery make up um, commandments six through nine the people are not there following what god wants them to do instead they break all bounds and when they do what happens violence erupts and bloodshed follows bloodshed and then from that comes something else because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away. Does that take you somewhere else in scripture? It should. It should take you right back to Genesis chapter one. And what we see here, if you've been with Simon on his Bible overview, is in a sense, this is the Bible's blessings being slammed into reverse. So creation is being ruined by the people's sin. They're breaking his, uh, the Lord's commands. It's like there's another fall among the people. And instead of loving him and honoring him and living out being made in his image, they're living their own way. Why does God care? because God sees the damage that sin does. We often don't. Uh, When the boys were small, we had a zoo pass, uh, for Bristol Zoo. We used to go there quite often, and uh, one of our favorite stopping off points was the hippo enclosure. If you've been to the zoo, they I don't know if they still have them. They used to have pygmy hippos. Someone who's a zoo expert can fill me in afterwards whether the pygmy, pygmy hippo is still there. There were many of them. Uh, they were fun to watch. They're amazing creatures. But here's what you need to know about the pygmy hippo. It stinks. Okay, you, you walk into the enclosure and there is an overwhelming stench of pygmy hippo. One time we walked in. And the staff had shut the pygmy hippos out of their pool and had drained it and refilled it. It was crystal clear. It was was a sight to behold. I'd never seen it anything other than dark brown. And there it was looking good enough that I could have dived in for a swim. I didn't. Uh, They then reopened the door and in charge the pygmy hippos. Desperate to get back in the water. In they went. And I'm not kidding. Within the few minutes I watched the water turn from crystal clear, and I might have drunk some of it, to deep brown. They just soiled the whole place. And the reason was, that's how pygmy hippos like to live. They actually find living in clean water extremely strange and disconcerting.
2: Can I insult you tonight? You are a pygmy hippo. We live in filth. We're surrounded by it. It's within our own hearts. We fill our homes with it. We fill our lives
1: with it. Half the time, we don't even recognize it. But to God, it always stinks. He will never make his peace with sin, he'll never compromise one jot on sin. It will never be okay for you to live in sin and say you're following Jesus. Till the day you die, God will be at work in your heart and life because he sees the damage sin does. Very occasionally we see it, don't we, with creation. Polluted oceans, destroyed ozone, rainforest ripped out. Why? One word, sin. We see it sometimes in relationships, don't we? We feel it when it's done to us. When someone sins against us, we feel it deeply. We feel hurt. We feel broken. God feels it all. He sees every single ripple in the ponds of sin. Every tiny wave and the damage that it does is seen by him. That's why he can't make peace with it. And he created you here tonight, whoever you are, to know him and love him and to be remade in the image of his son. And every time we settle for sin, we settle for something less.
2: Why does God care? Bottom line, you want to know? He loves you. That's why he cares. That's
1: why he perseveres with you. That's why his love has never given up on you. He cares. But his attention then changes from the people to their leaders. The next section is all about the priest. I don't know if you saw that again as it was read. But let no one bring a charge let No one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring a charge against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I'll destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God. I will also ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness, and it will be like people like priests, and I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So God's attention here settles on the priests. The role of the priest was to bring the people to God and God to the people. That was what they were supposed to do, to stand in the gap and make it possible for the people of Israel to freely worship a holy God bringing the sacrifices on the one hand, bringing the forgiveness from God to the people and blessing them. And instead, these people were not fulfilling their role. Instead of deepening the relationship between God and the people, it was actually becoming lost. Did you see that verse? My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. That isn't saying they didn't know things about God. They already had the law and the richness that that brought in the words of the prophets. So they knew things about God, but they didn't know him. Their relationship with him had broken down. The word for know is very intimate. I think it's amazing. It's the same word that's used for a husband wife, to know one another when they have sex. The same word is used of someone knowing God, that deep intimacy, that close connection between God and a human being, and they don't have that. They don't know him in that way. It's a bit like if, if you're, I don't know, you, some of you are royal family buffs. Maybe you go on Mastermind. You can answer every question. And you could say, hand on heart, I know about the queen. Ask me anything. Don't ask me anything. I don't know anything about the queen. Uh, but some of you could. But here's the difference. I know about the queen. And instead, if you could say, hand on heart, I know
2: the queen. Now, that's something quite different, isn't it? I know her. I've got a number. I can call her Elizabeth. That's different, isn't it?
1: And you see, the role of these priests was to introduce the people to love and love God and have that sort of relationship with Him. But instead, They led them deeper and deeper into sin. They had exchanged something. Do you see? That's where this idea of exchange love come from. Because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you as my priest because you've ignored the law of your God. I will ignore your children. The more the priests were there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. There was a wonderful God who loved them. And instead, they exchanged him for something else. 700 years later, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Rome. And for some of you, it's your favorite book of the whole Bible. And in there, he is explaining to the Christians in that culture, how the pagan culture, the non-Jewish culture became so wicked. How could it be that sin was so prevalent? And in the first chapter, he says these words, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul there was describing pagan Rome, a very, very wicked culture with many gods and many evil practices. Hosea was talking to God's people and saying, you've become just like the people who don't know me, who make up their own rules, who exchange the glory of God for idols. And the job of the faithful prophet Hosea, the job of Paul, the job of every faithful church leader and elder is to call all of us to follow the living God, not to exchange him for the idols of the age. There is always pressure on the church to conform to the pagan world outside. Every generation has this. My grandfather's generation, the pressure was on to prove how reasonable, how rational our faith is. So the books that he had on his bookshelf when he died were of almost no use to me because they denied the existence of miracles and a miraculous God and a virgin birth and a resurrection, because those things aren't rational and reasonable. So they were dismissed because it's thought to make our faith unbelievable. And that began in the colleges and made its way into the churches and has closed hundreds of churches in this country. What was it in the previous generation? The closer we get, often the harder it is to see. I had to think long and hard about this. Here's the two things. Following on from the summer of love and the 60s revolution, two things happened. The church reduced what it said about divorce because people wanted free love. And the church changed what it said about complementary relationships between men and women to follow feminism into equality uncritically. That happened a generation ago, and it has had a profound effect on the Church of Jesus Christ. I don't say that to hurt anyone here who's divorced, but simply to say that's a pattern of what happened. And in our generation, where's the line being drawn? In some ways, it's easier to see because the heat's on. It's in terms of gender identity and sexuality. Let me tell you this. The job of a church leader is not to work out as a church how we can accommodate to the culture outside. The job of the church leader is to say, what does this word say and how can we stick to it? Come what may. It'll be personally costly. It always is. if your faith is costing you nothing right now, you're not following Jesus. Simple as. If you have a costless Christianity, you don't know Christ. But sometimes the cost is going to be more intense of being faithful. I think that's what we're going to see in our culture but we don't compromise on this. We don't change what this word says to fit in with what's out there. We're a beacon of light to a dark world. And if they hated Christ at times, they're going to hate us too. And that's the price we pay for remaining faithful. You will always find church leaders who tell you this doesn't mean what it says, that there's Christianity without a cost, That you have not interpreted this right. Did God really say?
2: Whose voice is that? Whose voice is that? If you see that with me, take me out and shoot me. Take me out and shoot me. because life without this at the center in the end isn't worth living. And
1: I have to give an account to God for the way I've taught it to you. So God rounds on the priests because they're not doing their job. They're leading the people away from God. And I was struck this week by this quote by Warren Wearsby, old Bible commentator. Good man. He just says, as goes spiritual leadership, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes morality. And as goes morality, so goes the nation. That's what's at stake. Why is our country going in the way that it is? Because we've not held up the truth. We've not been the light we should have been. We've kept the light within the walls, and we're now reaping the hurricane. So God turns his attention to the leaders, And then he talks about the people's worship. We've already seen time and again, he accuses them of adultery. Look at verse 12. My people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Isn't that just tragic? The people of Israel had access to the living God. One of the things that marks God out as different to idols is that He speaks, He guides, He leads. He doesn't lead us in the dark about the things we need to know. But look at where they've gone instead. They can sort of wooden idol, a piece of wood, and they use the diviner stick, literally, kind of trying to see which way it pointed, you know, as to which way they should go. I think the New Living Translation gets this very well. It says, they ask a piece of wood for advice. They think a stick can tell them the future. That's where Israel had reached. And you see, once people go down that route, once you give up following the living God, bad things happen. You see in this passage here, they actually drink too much. In verse 11, they're over to prostitution, but also to old and new wine. Verse 18 highlights the fact that when the drinks are gone, they still continue in their prostitution. Drunkenness became a feature of their gathered worship together. Family life was breaking down. Very unusually, the men are held to account for this. This is revolutionary. We don't see it. You know, usually it was women that were blamed for leading men astray. Do you see what God does here? He just shakes his head at the men. He said, yeah, your women, your children, your daughters and daughter-in-law are prostitutes, but why? And he says, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. God lands this at the door of the men. That is absolutely revolutionary for an ancient culture.
2: And sexually, they were just completely out of control. like a friday
1: night i guess in bristol at a nightclub they gather for worship and there's people taking down too much to drink and they're having sex in the toilets you know this is the level that the people of israel have reached as they gather and you wonder god was saying to them this has to stop what does paul say in romans Immediately after those verses about exchanging the glory of God for idols, Paul continues. He says that what goes on in your heart will be seen in your behavior. And he says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. They gave themselves over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality for degrading their bodies you see what we worship in our hearts will be seen in our behavior now in our church here might think well you know it's a million miles from Friday night at Bristol nightclub here tonight we're all sat neatly in rows everyone's keeping their hands to themselves and no one's drinking anything I guess there's a warning isn't there that actually sexual immorality begins in our cases at a low level that actually we become attached to people in a way that we shouldn't, and we're family. We're brothers and sisters, so purity matters. But it's also the worst, it doesn't just happen when we're sat here. This is kind of the easy bit, isn't it? It is for me. It's what happens when I'm not here. It what happens? what happens when I'm at home. What happens when I'm out and about with people who don't know Jesus? What then is going on in my heart when I'm in the pub? when I'm watching stuff on TV, when I'm deciding what to look at on the internet, what is happening in my heart in those moments? Those are where my real worship is seen. What is going on in my heart will be seen in my life. What is going on in your heart will be seen in your life. Worship happens every day. From the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed, What's happening in your heart is being worked out in your life. The way you treat other people, the things you spend your money and your time on, the things that matter to you, the things that make you happy and sad, the things that make you cross and the things you couldn't care less about are an outworking of your worship to Jesus. So what will God do to a people like this? It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Would you expect a holy God to do nothing if his people were behaving that way? Would you expect him to act? Well, God does act. Look at chapter five of me. He says, hear this, you priests, pay attention, you Israelites, this your royal household, no one's going to escape. This judgment is against you. You've said a snare at Mizpah. Um, you uh, spread a net on Table. They're famous Old Testament places where now there are shrines. The, are, the rebels are knee deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel's not hidden from me. Ephraim, now the word for Israel. You have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. What's the first thing God
2: does? He disciplines his people. Disciplines. He's a father. He wants them to come back
1: to him in a real heartfelt way but if they don't then the discipline will be severe and in this culture it was a very severe discipline as Hosea's ministry came to an end that whirlwind described at the top of the page there in verse 19 hit the nation. It came in the form of a conquering army. The Assyrian army went across Israel. It was described by another prophet as being like locusts. Nothing would be left when the Assyrians hit that nation. It was a severe discipline. And it's a reminder to us here tonight, these words that Paul said to the Galatians, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh, will reap destruction. God is never soft on sin. But before that final moment came, God did something else to the Israelites that he also does to us. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. You can't have sin and Jesus. Some point you have to decide which matters more to you. For a long time, people tried to have both, but do you see that there? They couldn't come back to God while they were holding on to their sin. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They don't acknowledge God. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. Why not? He has withdrawn himself from them. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you a serious question here tonight? Have you ever felt the absence of God in your life? You ever felt that he's not with you in the way that he once was with you? Have you ever felt that before? Do you know what? You can't miss what you have never had. So if you do feel that absence in itself, it is a good sign. Because you can't miss what you have never had experienced so if you've known a season when you have been close to God when you felt his love when you've known his forgiveness when you've known his spirit with you if that is absent from your life it may be because you're depressed in which case it's a hard thing to feel but it may also be that the Lord is actually pulling back from you so that you will choose between him and sin Sometimes sin gets such a grip in our lives, we only deal with it seriously once we realize what we have lost. And God pulls back from us so that we would miss him, so that we would want him, so that we would lay down whatever it takes to come back into a right walk with him. That might be alcohol, it might be sex, it might be money, it might be 101 things that have just crowded him out so the weeds have taken over the garden. And God withdraws so that we would come back to him. Why does he do that?
2: Because he's the perfect husband. And he's the perfect father.
1: There's nothing more grieving, is there, than to have a hard marriage, to be struggling to get along with someone. It is heartbreaking. Nothing worse than a child who's gone off the rails. And I look back at my teenage years. I brought my dad to tears with my behavior. As a teenager. I didn't see him cry again until I told him my wife was dying, which tells you something about my behavior and
2: his broken heart. He wanted me home. He wanted me to express love by the way that I behaved. And I was deeply in rebellion, far from the heart of his love. And he wanted me home. That's how God wants you. He wants your love. He
1: doesn't want an hour on a Sunday night. He doesn't want an hour on a Sunday morning. He doesn't want an hour or two midweek. He doesn't want 20 minutes in the morning. He wants your love. And that is something quite different. Do you remember at the beginning that quote by David Paul Leeson, his reaction to the angry parent in the supermarket? He said, I was angry. I hated what they were doing in such a way that I wanted to Help. I wished I could protect them, give them mercy and help them change. It was one of those two rare moments when anger seemed motivated by love. Let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, your loving God can protect you. Your loving God can show mercy to you. Your loving God can help you to change. Your loving God wants your heart to be filled with faithfulness and love for Him, and so to acknowledge Him in all of your ways. And His anger at sin is always motivated by love. And it is a love that through Jesus Christ will never let you go. Let me pray. Father God, this is a deeply challenging passage of scripture because. So often we give you tokens of love rather than our very heart and our very soul. Lord, please forgive us. We realize that in so many ways we are like the people of Israel. Outwardly we worship you, inwardly we struggle. Oh Lord, help us to know what it is to really repent. Help us to know what it is to really come back to you and love you. Thank you that you are our perfect Father in heaven. You are our perfect husband who loves us like no other. Help us to believe in the depths of your love, to experience the depths of your love. Oh Lord, help us to walk in that love, that the world out there might see Jesus, that we might be those who act as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God who call people out of the darkness and into the wonderful light and love of Jesus. For we ask these things
2: in his precious name and for his glory. Amen.